The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, war rages as the great extermination spreads, a race against time and a gateway to the unknown, and a hero stands against the coming darkness. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. Today, we bring you part one in a two-part interview Sean Patrick Hazlett conducted with Larry Correa about the new Saga of the Forgotten Warrior entry, Tower of Silence. But first, the news. The April hardcovers and trade paperbacks are in. First up is Tower of Silence by Larry Correa. The assassination of the chief judge has pushed the capital to the edge. The great extermination has spread to all the land. The castless must be annihilated. Their only hope is the fallen protector Ashok Vidal, but Vidal is being held prisoner on the island of Fortress. In order to save those who need him most, he must escape and find his way across the demon-infested sea and return to Thera, the prophet of an illegal and forgotten god. Ashok Vidal, Thera, and the Sons of the Black Sword face foes both human and supernatural, Byzantine political intrigue, and bloody hand-to-hand combat, and gods and demons alike. But Vidal is a warrior with a warrior's heart, and woe to those who would stand in his way, man, god, demon, or otherwise. Next up is Escape Orbit by Patrick Childs. Five years ago, astronaut Jack Templeton took the spacecraft Magellan to the farthest reaches of our solar system, never to be heard from again. Until now. When the Magellan suddenly reappears where an undiscovered planet was supposed to be, it poses more questions than answers. In a race against time, Jack's former crewmate Tracy Keene spearheads a desperate effort to outfit a rescue mission. But she has competition. Agencies of both American and foreign governments have their own agendas, and saving rogue astronauts isn't among them. And at the edge of all that is known, a gateway to the unknown awaits. And finally, Wraithbound by Tim Akers. Since he was a boy, Ray has dreamed of being a stormbinder like his father with an air elemental stitched into the fabric of his soul and the winds of heaven at his command. Those dreams died when his father, through no fault of his own, fell into disgrace and was banned by the Justicars of the Iron Council. The family fled to the edge of the ordered world to live in fear in the shadow of encroaching chaos. When Ray defies his father's orders and attempts to stitch an air elemental to his soul, he instead binds himself to a mysterious wraith. That's when things get complicated and the world starts to fall apart around him, literally. That's Tower of Silence by Larry Correa, Escape Orbit by Patrick Childs, and Wraithbound by Tim Akers, all available now. And that's it for the news. Welcome. We are here with the Bain Radio Free Podcast. I am here with Larry Correa. Larry, how are you doing, my friend? 
I'm doing awesome, Sean. Glad to be on again. Yeah, I'm. Uh, it's always a pleasure to to talk to you, my friend. And you have the Tower of Silence. I think it's out like today, right? Yeah, today's the release date. Um, it's April fourth, and pretty excited about that. Um, it's out in uh, hardcover and ebook, and audio is coming, but I don't have the date on that audio yet. That's delayed. Okay, and then for those who are watching this, it's probably three days prior, but pretty you know, close enough. So, tell us where at the very beginning of the go- beginning of the book uh, we leave off with Ashok from the from the prior version. Oh man. Okay. So we're, we're a finished, um, some spoilers are going to be involved here. Obviously we're talking about book four of a, se- of a five book series. Uh, we left the uh, main character Ashok had just fought his best friend of his entire life, uh, in a duel, um, that, that was really good, came out in an interesting way. He winds up, uh, on the Island of Fortress, which is far to the South. It's the forbidden secret, southern island where the religious fanatics supposedly live they don't know, know anything about these people just that's where gunpowder comes from mm-hmm. um and so we open up with ashok in prison uh where he's been uh imprisoned for the last uh i believe most of a year uh basically chained to a wall starving and uh that's where we open and uh as he's he's finally put on trial for his crimes of being a evil outside trespasser on this place uh but also because this is the um it's kind of like the fortress is the opposite of the of the of lock of the of the mainland Mm -hmm. because the mainland uh basically they have the all-encompassing law that banned religion and took the place of religion basically the god is the law uh whereas fortress was the where the religious kind of like taiwan to china (laughs) (laughs) Only, only religion not communism uh and and so basically they wound up in fortress but They've also kind of fallen in unbelief, but in different ways, because they had to prophesize things that were supposed to happen have not happened. And their ruling class has become more and more awful. And uh, Ashok comes along, and it appears that he actually uh, fulfills these various prophecies, and uh, but just not in the way that they wanted. And uh, then Ashok goes about doing uh, Ashok yeah, things, does. <laughs> as he does. Uh, for those of you that haven't read the series, the way I describe this character, because he opens up when the book, book one starts, he is not a good dude. He is the ultimate law enforcement. He's basically fantasy judge dread. He is the dude that burns villages um, as part of it. He just does awful things. He's a paladin, but it's not a lawful good paladin. It's a lawful, lawful paladin, right? And as the story goes on, he learns the truth of his world and he evolves as a person and he actually grows and, and, and just has to make his own code of right and wrong. So he winds up in this place that's been basically abusing all this stuff that he's been learning about. Um, and he doesn't take it well. <laughs> and, and you got to say, Ashok is probably one of the most violent characters I've ever written, just by default. This guy is a, he's a superhuman killing machine by design. Uh, mm-hmm. And he puts that to good use and in rather rather exciting ways <laughs> yeah there's almost there's a scene and it won't give anything away where <laughs> i think he's he's passing into a town i'll just call it a town or a city with some monks and somebody kind of looks at him and it's kind of like what are you looking at and he kind of just he thinks he doesn't he's actually there's an un, unbelievable level of restraint there because he thinks a dead man. 
And he's still able to restrain himself. So he is growing in, in some ways. Can you say a little bit more, not about that incident, but about his character arc over this series? And by the way, what explain what cast he's from. Because there's the okay. cast system. Yeah, so, uh, and actually that's how the whole kind of pseudo-Indian setting came about originally, is because when I came up with the idea is I needed a, a, a world with a really rigid cast system. And the way it's broken down in this universe is there's four, basically four levels of people. Well, three levels of people. And the first being the ruling caste, referred to as the first caste, they are the administrators. Because keep in mind, the law is basically taking the place of religion. The law is the all-encompassing, all-controlling central authority. The law needs administrators. It needs judges. Uh, it needs people to to uh, arbit, arbitrate it and uh, basically the lawyer class. And so that's your ruling class. They're the highest. And then to serve them and or to protect them is the warrior caste, the second caste. And the warriors are basically the military because the way the country is divided up, there's 12 great houses that each are kind of like a familial lineage kind of thing going on. Uh, they're, they're competing, but they're all united under one central authority, the law, the capital. Uh, the warrior caste is the armies of each of these. And actually the law allows for a certain amount of war between these different because they look at it as competition is a good thing. And so mm -hmm. they want these, they want the warrior caste to be occupied. Uh, the warrior caste needs to be fighting the other warrior caste, not looking with jealousy towards the, the ruling class. Uh, that sounds third, familiar. I know. Yeah, I don't know. There's some themes in this book. Yeah, there uh, are some themes. We'll talk about themes later, but yeah, yeah. go yeah. on. Sorry. Well, I try to I focus on the entertainment aspects, but I, I, <laughs> there's a lot of world building in this. Then the third cast is the, war, uh, the workers. The workers are basically the labor cast. They're the people who do you know all the miscellaneous things uh, to serve. Now, they're kind of screwed because they're very limited on what they're allowed to do, but they're also super vital because without them, you starve. You know, they're the guys that make the, you know everything run on time uh and actually and i get into the book a little bit this is the only universe and i never write about this in the book but i'm a, I'm a former finance guy i have a fantasy world with fractional reserve banking in it but i never talked about that because that'd be super boring to the reader but the worker cast actually manages the trade and the money uh is what it is and that's why they're important then the fourth is not actually a cast they're the cast lists they're not actually people. Yeah. <laughs> right, Legally, right. they're not people. Legally, it goes right. humans, or first cast, second cast, third cast, that's humans, livestock, the castless. <laughs> and uh, and so basically, they're the non-people. And, and the, a big part of the book is where they come from, like really where these people come from and why they exist. Uh, and they're kind of regulated to just the worst roles in society that no one else wants. The, they, they get the, the roles that are basically the, the dregs. They are the ones that clean the sewer. Um, in this universe, uh, the ocean is cursed, basically. They're on land. They're surrounded by ocean. They're surrounded by sea. The sea is basically hell in this universe. It's populated by a horrible race that consider, they're called demons. Uh, that's what the people think of them as, is demons. Mm -hmm. they're, and they're actually unstoppable, horrific killing machines. So guess who gets to live by the ocean? <laughs> the castless, the lowest of the low. And, uh, but that also makes them, so they do have a purpose in the society and they do serve a role and which is why they haven't got rid of them. However, when the book opens, there is actually a, a scheme afoot to get rid of the castless. Uh, and um, 
that's where this comes from. And, and that's a big part of the background of the story. And Ashok finds out the truth of this world and why things are the way they really are. But even in your economic system, the casteless provide a function, right? They're they not do. entirely useless to such an extent that their disappearance could cause great upheaval potentially. Unbelievable upheaval in a lot of ways, because you think about it, if society is like, well, every dishonorable thing that has to happen, we're just going to, you know, well, we don't want to talk about it. We're going to have those guys do it. And keep in mind, this is a world where water is looked down upon anything related to water. And also when you have a, a land crisscrossed by rivers, uh, who gets to deal with that? You know, and all the river traffic is also the castless. And so, yeah, this once again, this is not an economics book, guys. This is an action adventure sword, or, sword and sorcery kind of book. But I put a lot of thought in this stuff. Ashok comes from the highest caste. He's actually a, a, a member of a special militant order called the Protectors. Uh, so they're basically an organization with the capital that is like the central, central bureau of ultimate law enforcement officers. Uh, and every one of these guys has been magically augmented uh, to be better than, than a regular warrior. And so they, they're drawn from the first caste or the warrior caste, uh, usually the highest of the high families, and those uh, donate their kids to this order, uh, where they serve a term of enlistment of 10 or 20 years. Uh, they go around basically doing the unspeakable on behalf of the law. Uh, and they are judge, jury, and executioner, roving magical law enforcement agents. Uh, and this is a rather merciless system that we built here. So our main character comes from that background, and he is the protector's protector. He is the man. Like, he is the one that all the other protectors talk about. Like, like holy crap, it's that guy. And we get into where he comes from, and you actually learn why he is the living embodiment of the law. Because other people, they have, like, consciences. <laughs> <laughs> that trouble them, you know, as they're yeah, doing he's, things. He's like the, the algorithm. Well, there's a, it's like, there's an algorithm operating in his head. It's either the law or not the law, whether yeah. it's good or bad is not, it's either law. Yes. Law. No. And the law. No gets absolutely punished. Yeah. It's actually, so well, my, my cover blurb is from Jim butcher uh, on one of the books and cause Jim loved it. And Jim, Jim thought it was the best uh, best take ever on the whole concept of the paladin character who is a law first, you know, and because and, a lot of times that's written as lawful stupid, you know, they, they, they just do it dumbly because it's required and doesn't really make a lot of sense. Ashok, when you get to know why he is the way he is, it makes perfect sense. He, he's not just a person. Uh, he's a creation. He, is, he was built from the ground up. To, to, to be the ultimate servant of the law. And I take that from him. Um, basically, I, I, we, we ruin his world. We, we turn it upside down. And uh, as the series goes on, he is forced uh, to become a lawbreaker. And uh, believe me, this guy would love to just walk into the ocean and end it all at that point, but he can't. Because once he is commanded to do something, he has to do it to the best of his ability. There is no quit. There is no stop. So he's just kind of an unstoppable force of a character but as the series goes on it's great because i get to actually develop him as he actually meets people outside of his sphere and he learns about the rest of the world as, as the series goes on it's basically um I, I describe ashok as a cross between like the punisher and george washington <laughs> <laughs> i can see that i could definitely see that and the interesting part about it is 
he's starting to learn as he leaves Locke and is in, you know, walking around or, or kind of interacting with the monks as an example, he starts to learn different things about the world that have been hidden from his worldview or, or he's not been exposed to in terms of how the, how the world came to be, what it was, et cetera. I'm not going to say too much about that here, but it starts to kind of mess with his worldview. How do you, how do you see him developing through this process, even this book and beyond? Yeah. Well, I, so originally when I pitched this to Tony Weisskopf, I pitched it as a trilogy. Um, and the Bane five book trilogy. Well, yeah, here's the kicker. There's Tony smart. She's smarter than I am. She's way more experienced. <laughs> I, I, and, and I gave her some of the black story. She loved it. She bought it. She was all in. It's a great story. She's like, okay, what is your outline for the rest of the series? I gave her my outline. I'm an outliner. She knows that. So I gave her my outline. This is what's going to happen. And she came back to me. She says, that is not three books. She's like, that's, she's like, that's five books. And I was like, oh, no, 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 I could fit it in three. I've done it before. I did hard magic. It's a trilogy. I can do a trilogy. And she's like, okay, I'll give you a contract for three books. That's how you do. And then I wrote um, House of Assassins, which actually turned out to be the first half of the second book in my outline. <laughs> and it's a full book. It's a full-size novel. So I was like, okay, geez. So I went back to Tony. I was like, I was wrong, Tony. It's You were, you were correct. And uh, so that's how it's worked out. But no, so I've plotted this out from the very beginning. And kind of Ashok's the main character um and so we see his arc we see his journey over this he goes from basically unfeeling automaton of the law to a an actual human being uh with with all that entails and the passions that entails and what that means and who finds a new thing to fight for and when you take somebody that dangerous who's fighting for something before he i mean the guy is actually he's a terrible leader he is actually as a symbol he's incredible as a leader he's awful because he doesn't understand regular people. <laughs> um, I've actually got a lot of a lot of uh, fans who have various like um, uh, like like uh, I'm trying to think with verbal uh, emotional disconnects, and they and they they email me he's like, "Dude, I love Ashok. Ashok <laughs> is the best best fit I've ever had for a character." I was like, "Well, thank you." Um, but I also write a bunch of uh, there's a bunch of other characters we follow too, so I yep. bring in characters from every cast. So we can kind of see their perspective on things and we kind of bring them along on this adventure. Um, it's actually really interesting. So everybody's got an arc and, and basically it, it, I'm writing about what when this book is basically the end of the age of law. And this is the age of law that they've had for the last, you know, thousand years almost. And this is the new thing. Uh, basically this is the, what I'm writing here is the beginning of the revolution to the next stage of these uh, of this of this culture's existence is what it is. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like the time of turmoil. And uh, but Ashok is not not that I'm a symbolism writer. I'm not a big symbolism guy. But Ashok kind of is symbolic of his of his whole people. You know, because it was the the unfeeling law having to having to step into the next thing. So. Honestly, I, I love this series. I mean, I'm, I'm primarily known as an action adventure guy, and I stick a lot of action adventure in this. But this series is the one that I actually get to put like my big boy pants on, and uh, <laughs> and really kind of stretch, and, and 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 go for like some 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 deeper stuff. I, I'm really proud of this one. I I enjoy the hell out of it. I I'm excited to finish it because I want to get the whole series out there for everybody to see because I I'm I'm it's got a cool ending. You know, it's, 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 it's a cool series. Now, what about 
the the man who almost killed Ashok, the kind of the, the reason the reason he is in kind of the, the South and imprisoned because he was it sounds like he was left for dead for the most part. Yep. Kind of the so-called puppet king. Let's yep. say, let's say. Let's, yeah. uh, that he's that's an interesting character. Why don't we I talk, love Devados. Uh, yeah, Devados, Devados is a great character. So Devados is also a protector, like Ashok. Um, difference being that and they were like brothers. Uh they came up together. The, he's he's a couple years older than Ashok, but Ashok was like Mr. Super Overachiever. So obviously he was, you know, in a level above. But Devados is is considered the best of the best. And and he's always had this thing. And so he comes from a super important lineage, uh, but he was robbed of it as a boy. Like he never had a chance to be what he should have been. Uh, he, his dad was the ruler of a great house. His dad was the bearer of an ancestor blade, which we haven't talked about, but the series is a big deal. Um, and his dad failed and died. And then his, his kingdom, his, his house was crushed and then dismantled into two other houses. So Devados gets sent off to the protectors as a boy, robbed of everything he should have been. This is like the man who should have been great. Instead, he's like, he's regulated to this organization of law enforcers. That said, he can't help but be that guy that is the best. And that's how he's wired. So when you hook him up with somebody like Ashok, they're a perfect uh, combination of two dudes who will never, ever stop. And as the series goes on, they wind up at opposite ends of, of this battle. Uh, so they, it's like these guys were brothers. That said, Devados, uh, Ashok is flawed in a lot of ways, but uh, Ashok is Ashok. Devados is flawed too in that his ambition and his pride, uh, he's not a bad man per se, but he's easily roped into being bad if if it if it goes along with his goals and his pride and 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 just his the man can't bear uh to not achieve and so when you put him against ashok it's like these two unstoppable forces colliding but the thing is they're actually genuinely best friends they're brothers who have to then at the end of the book of book three um the story of worlds these two guys have to fight to the death you know they have to duel to the death because ashok is everything that devados wanted to be but couldn't be and so Devados and the thing is they're both lawbreakers even though one is the champion of the law and the other is like now this horrible outsider like the traitor the great traitor of this whole society only really honestly, which is ironic which is ironic yeah. because he's like the embodiment of the law right so so Ashok's actually the one that's more truthful even though he's the criminal the wanted criminal he's the one that's actually devoted whereas Devados will pay lip service to the law to get what he wants and so there's a conspiracy going on to basically overthrow the government and install Devados as the puppet king. Only Devados is nobody's puppet. Um, and so the, the conspirators, who you know, they're they're bad dudes too, uh, especially one in particular, <laughs> who we get into <laughs> a lot in the last book. Um, they they want to install this guy as their puppet because he's like the perfect symbolic dude. He, he's the hero. And I get a lot into this book about the propaganda and how they like twist reality. And I have this one guy um, who's a master manipulator of public sentiment. He they 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 put on plays ab about this about the events of the book, and as you, mm -hmm. and you can see the play and how it's just like this this horribly Listen. untrue version of what actually <laughs> happened. 
but it's all emotional manipulation. He's out there paying graffiti artists to, to like do graffiti of propaganda, even though it's illegal to like write on a government building. He's like, go do graffiti to show Devadost as like this heroic figure who's standing up to scary, evil Ashok. You know, that way the people, the masses, the worker caste will look at that and be like, oh yeah, that's the sentiment, you know? It's just, I, I love right that guy's talking. Yeah, he's, he's got a, he's part of a conspiracy to overthrow the government, even as he is like the representative of it. Uh, and, and as we left off in, uh, in uh, book four, that is, uh, that is going on. I mean, we're actively having basically at this point uh, as uh, where we're at right now. And a lot of people don't even know it. <laughs> what I really appreciate about it is it's, it's, it's a good frame of how systems and governments actually work in, in the sense that, you know, I'm not saying any specific governments, but <laughs> you have these effete elites kind of in the background making these decisions, but the decisions are very brought with very broad strokes. And even the way that the, the slow wheel of execution turns, I think you do a phenomenal job of explaining how that is. When you, when you put something out that people know is kind of not just logically, but intuitively is the wrong thing. And is like a bad, like a super bad idea. There's some people who are just like, yes, sir, right away, sir. And they just do it. But there's a huge resistance that declines at like almost, uh, you know, inversely correlated or directly correlated with distance, right? Where people are reluctant to do insane things, but yet people still do it. So you know exactly what decision I'm talking about. It's interesting Uh, to me because like a fantasy novel too many times where I see where people write a fantasy novel and they'll have the evil overlord will just give his orders and then his armies of orcs will just go do whatever. I mean, that works if you're writing a, pe- a populace that's just kind of like unthinking creations, but that's not how humans work. And I'm writing about humans. I'm writing about people. Uh, but people can be manipulated emotionally um, and they can be, even the best of intentions can be twisted and yes. people can be lied to. And it, and so honestly, a big part of this book is, um, I mean, I kind of love getting into the political machinations of it, but I hate when, when you have bad guys who are just like mustache twirling evil for the sake of right. evil. I right. mean, but basically in this book, I, I have one guy who is literally the embodiment of freaking evil, but however, he has his motivations. There's a reason he is doing what he is doing. And if you look at it from his perspective, it actually makes perfect sense. He's a complete, he's a complete sociopath. Um, but it makes perfect sense for him. And I got all these different great houses. Each one of them is in it to win it for them. And I've got the judges, you know, the, the, the administrators of the law. They are trying to do what they can for their own power. And so it's just like, it's just like real life. You got these different groups of people who are all kind of vying for what they want and what they think is best. And then a lot of regular people just kind of get scooped up in this and, and, and squished. <laughs> It's almost like real life in the sense that people follow their interests. And when they say or do things that don't make sense at face value, if you follow or put yourself into their position and and try to understand 
what their interests are. Like, again, I don't want to stray too far outside the book, but when you look at Putin, for example, if you look at his perspective, you can see what his interests are and you can predict what, he, what he's going to do. And I appreciate the way in your, in your book that you do do that, but it still has the friction of reality, the friction of war, the friction of execution on some of these, these things. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know if, I don't know if you, if this is the first time you revealed it. So I don't, I'm afraid to, to say it. It begins with uh, eight, it's rhymes with eight and, uh, and determination. <laughs> eight determination. Oh, the, oh, the great extermination. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. I was like, let me say, uh, yeah, no, I, I, cause I talked about that earlier in the series, so we're good. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. That, that, that is fa- this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like that's yeah. fascinating watching the wheels of execution turn on that. Say a little bit more about why. Well, cause what it is, um, the castless, uh, so I'll have some spoilers here, but the cat, and I kind of do reveal this in the first book. The reason the castless are castless, the reason you have this group of human beings that are just considered, they can't hold any office in society whatsoever. They're just property. That's because in the olden days, before the rise of the age of law, they were the boss. They were the, the people in charge. And I don't go to get into history too much, but basically there was, one of the tropes I love in fantasy novels is that there was the chosen one would be born like so the bad guy the big evil bad guy attacks a thousand years ago or whatever and then somebody defeats him and then a, a descendant of that hero in a thousand years will de- is the only one that can defeat the big bad again right we've all seen that trope a million times and then when you right. see the novel it's assistant pig farmer's son is the chosen one who has to become the great hero luke that's skywalker pride, that's pride series you pulled right, right out of the pride and assistant pig yeah keeper, right? yeah so you know what i mean we've been done a million times in fantasy yeah. the thing is though genetically that's not how human beings work if you had a great hero a thousand years ago who had kid you know he had you know all these generations of, of kids to get to this kid you don't have one descendant you have ten thousand descendants that's how it works um and with genetic selection you know a fraction of those will actually have some of your DNA in them. Okay. So what I did instead was, um, and they did have the, the big, bad, evil thing, the, the demons, uh, the great war against the demons where the demons reigned from the sky, um, which we'll get into the mythology a little bit, but mankind barely survived and mankind barely survived because of one guy, one basically super soldier uh, who brought magic to the masses and enabled mankind to defeat the demons and drive them into the ocean. But it's prophesied that someday the demons would return. And only the blood of that great hero, only the bloodline of that great hero would be able to defeat the demons. So that, so you think about human nature, what happens when you have people who are like that important and that infallible and that you can never get rid of them? And society must cater to their needs. Well, you'd create a warrior caste to defend them. You'd create a worker caste to serve them. Uh, you'd build up a religion around them. They would have priests. They would have people about how important they are and how important it is you keep these people around. And what would those people do? They would turn awful. Over, over hundreds of years, they would get worse and worse and worse and more and more numerous and more and more bossy and more and more annoying. I was kind of like, you look at the, the Saudi Arabia and the House of Saud, you know, like, you don't mess with yeah, the House princelings. of Saud, you know, right. the princes, and there's a thousand princes or whatever they've got now. This is that kind of thing on steroids. <laughs> and so at the age of kings is what they called it, uh, before the age of law, 
the people had just gotten so sick of their high and mighty saviors that they cast them down. However, enough people still believed in the old ways and the old beliefs that only this bloodline could save us that they made it illegal to kill them. So they could no longer hold office. They could no longer serve in any capacity. They could no longer have jobs. They were out completely outside and let them die. But you couldn't kill them. And that's why they became, that's how we got the castless. And, um, and then the age of law was born. And the law has now over a thousand years turned into basically the same thing that it threw down uh, so long ago with the upper class of elites who just tell everybody else what to do. And uh, now they're like, we have one guy involved who, who wants to get rid of the cast list for a very specific reason. Well, I probably shouldn't say on the podcast what that is, uh, yeah. just because it, that is a big reveal. That's a huge reveal, and it's also an awesome scene. <clears throat> so basically, it's like they, they have a, he, has, he proposes a plan. He brings forward a plan. Well, he does it. His little minions do. Uh, they call it the Great Extermination. And basically, they originally called it the Extermination War. But that wasn't cool because uh, you war against people. These guys, these guys are less than livestock. You don't have a war. Plus, saying war makes it sound like it'll be hard. And we want everybody to think it's going to be easy. Right. <laughs> so it's like, hey, basically, we got to go kill millions and millions of people all across the entire continent that we are dependent upon for a lot of things. We're going to go kill them, but don't worry, it'll be easy. And then society will be better. Um, and so the, the series has been going on for a few years now. But uh, they laid the groundwork beforehand. One of the main characters uh, is a great character. She's a she's an archivist. She's a researcher for the oh, librarian. Yeah, she's the librarian, yeah. Rada, Radamanta. Love this character. Fantastic character. And how she gets involved in all this is she's too smart. Uh, she is not the person that that the government would get to do research into a situation like this to see if it's okay to do this or not. You know, right. So, so instead, they give it to an idiot. Uh, right. to present the official report only she kind of butts in and takes over and does her research and come into the forbidden stuff because remember religion is banned and this gets into religious and she comes out and she's like no 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 this is what it is this is why we can't kill these people well at that point she's got to go <laughs> you know so the conspirators like we got to shut her up yep. and uh and that's how she she comes into this and fantastic character because she's just a, a nerd who's out of her depth. <laughs> Love her. But she's, but she, I mean, but in the book, she actually demonstrates some qualities that someone of her cast yep. generally doesn't that are helpful, which is also I, interesting. One of the things I try to do with all the characters too is I, I've got these, I've got these different, I got these different, four different groups, but I try to basically bring somebody from each one who epitomizes the good of their cast. Uh, they, 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 they epitomize the ideal of what their cast is and their, and their, and their place. And they all kind of like, they're all stuck where they are, but, but because of circumstances, they rise above. Um, so Rada is the representative of the first cast who is actually a really good person and who is actually trying to do that. Um, you know, the, the, the nobility of actually trying to help the, the people below you. You know, and she grows into that because when she starts, she is not that at all. Uh, she's she's an antisocial librarian who hates all people and just wants to be left alone and to read books, you know, but but she gets dragged into this and it, over time it sports her. And then uh, the warrior is Jagdish. 
um, mm-hmm. uh, who is one of my all-time favorite characters ever written. Actually, before long before this series existed, Jagdish was a character in a role-playing game, uh, and that's where Jagdish comes from. Uh, uh, like a, a long time ago. By the way, there's guy. a scene in that in the, a scene in that book. I don't know. I'll try not to give it away. Where I just I I I love how you made it happen because how do I I'm trying to not to reveal any any spoilers, but something happens and he goes he goes out literally to to kill the guy who didn't show up when he was supposed to show up. And then having having been a having been an army officer, there's some what happens to resolve that was just classic. I'm like, yep. <laughs> yeah yeah of course of course it's something that you know just misallocation of resources yep. like that that sort of thing but the way that you framed it like i thought he was going to kill the guy uh, oh, he yeah. might he might he might kill the guy he might kill the guy i'm not saying he didn't well because it's but, all the it's all the same warrior pride thing uh because warriors have to be proud and yeah. this is and i got a society here with uh based on you know they have a dueling they have they have a honor code for dueling and resolving all your all your issues through violence and and basically your social status and it's all about social status and and, and violence is and power and so when this guy thinks that somebody who's his equal in rank screwed him in a way that it put his family in danger it didn't just screw right. him like politically or you know no no it screwed him in a way that it, his his house almost got burned down with his kid in it, right? So he was pissed. And so he's like going to just, he's just going to murder this other guy. Plus, Jack Deesh is a hell of a good duelist, right? That's part of the, part of his, you know, thing. And this dude trains hard. And so he goes to just kick ass. And then when you get to the situation, it's like, this is what actually happened. He's like, damn it. <laughs> and there's this moment of warrior pride, though, where the, where the actual warriors, the guy that actually, fight and, and and have honor but but put up with this crappy system that they're in are both like let's go let's go mess with the dudes that caused this problem yeah, just, I, yeah well it's it was a katama is that the guys the other the yeah, other guys fonto katama i love he, that guy he's like 20 years older and the way he handled it was like an elder statesman he's just like yeah i thought i thought you'd want to kill me let <laughs> Just read this first and just to understand the level of what's a, I, I can't say this word, but you know, what you probably know what word it begins with an R and ends in Asian, but uh, like, it's just one of those things like hire sends something down and you're like, what the hell? Yeah, Are, you, are you kidding me? You've got to be kidding me. I actually really like Katama. Yeah, yeah, he's a new character this in 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 the fourth book, and he's a great character. That guy's that guy's a hoot because he's very much uh, he's the old soldier, you know. Mm -hmm. Whereas Jagdish is the young hard charger, uh, and and he's the young badass who's also been put in a a station far above what he he should be at this point, just because of the circumstances of the third book, which is as I've been told is the greatest promotion ceremony ever written. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to spoil it. That, that scene in the third book where he gets promoted is, is, is basically, basically uh, the equivalent in the third book is we took a guy who was a second Lieutenant uh, who won the medal of honor and they made him a five-star general. 
I mean, it's, it's not. It was like, hey, <laughs> this guy. Guys, look, we have a new hero. We got a big deal here. Then this is, you know, and the politician who just does it, just declares it. Well, actually, when we, it'd be like a one-star general. But, but, the, but the politician just declares it, and it is what it is. It'd be like the president of the United States just came and said, hey, this guy did really good, and we really need a hero right now. What's, what's the highest thing I can put him to? Uh, general? Sure, let's do that. It's like, I don't know what the ranks are, whatever you call it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the kind of thing that happens in corporate all the time, and you're like... Yeah, yeah, it was actually a very corporate decision is what happened <laughs> But poor Jagdish goes from a guy who's basically getting the court martial to being promoted 10 ranks uh, in, in like three minutes. Um, I was, and he thought he was going to get executed. Remember, you get, there, there's no like dishonorable discharge here. It's like your dishonorable discharge is you get hung. <laughs> sounds, sounds about right. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. Parked at one end of Capitalia Starfield, Darl's ship was an impressive sight. Smaller than the big space-only transports, of course, but still more than twice the size of Aventine's own dewdrop. A sensor guard perimeter extended another 50 meters in all directions, and as Johnny passed its boundary, he noticed an automated turret atop the ship rotate slightly to cover him. The two marines at the closed entryway made no such obvious moves, but Johnny saw that the muzzles of their shoulder-mounted parrot guns stayed on him the entire way. Syndic Johnny Moreau to see Comité Darl, he told him, coming to a halt a few meters away. Are you expected, sir? One of the guards asked. He could afford to be courteous. In full exoskeleton armor, he was more powerful than even a cobra. He'll see me, Johnny said. Tell him I'm here. The other guard glanced at his partner. The Comité's quite busy, sir, with the departure tomorrow and all. Tell him I'm here, Johnny repeated. The first guard pursed his lips and touched a control at his throat. His conversation was brief and inaudible, but a moment later he nodded. The comité will see you, Syndic, he told Johnny. Your escort will be here shortly. Johnny nodded and settled down to wait, and when the escort arrived, he wasn't surprised to see who it was. Johnny! Jamie nodded in greeting. His smile was cordial but tight. Comité Darl's waiting in his office. If you'll follow me... They passed through the heavy Kyrelium steel entryway and between another pair of armored marines. I was hoping to see you again before we left, Jamie said as they started into a maze of short corridors. Your office said you were on vacation and couldn't be reached. Chris thought it would help me to get away for a couple of weeks, Johnny told him evenly. Try to come to grips with what your comité's done to us. 
Jamie looked sideways at him. And did you? You mean do I intend to attack him? Johnny shook his head. No. All I want is to understand him, to find out why. He owes me that much. Ahead, two more Marines, this pair in dress uniforms, flanked an obviously reinforced door. Jamie led the way between them and palmed the lock, and the panel slid soundlessly open. Syndic Moreau, Darl said, rising from the desk that dominated the modest-sized room. Welcome. Please sit down. He indicated a chair across the desk from him. Johnny did so. Jamie took a chair by the desk's corner, equidistant from the other two men. Johnny wondered briefly if the choice was deliberate, decided it probably was. I'd hoped you'd come by this evening, Darl said, sitting back down himself. This will be our last chance to talk, shall we say, honestly, before the tedious departure ceremonies Zhu has scheduled for tomorrow. Tedious? I take it it's not the public acclaim or adoration that makes all this worthwhile to you, then. Johnny took a moment to glance around the room. Comfortable, certainly, but hardly up to the standards of luxury he would have expected in a Dominion Comité's personal quarters. Obviously, it's not the wealth, either. So what is it? The power to make people do what you want? Darl shook his head. You miss the whole point of what happened here. Do I? You knew the Gantuas would be going on a rampage just at the time you came dangling your cobra bait in front of our faces. You knew all along it was the dehydrated blusser reeds, yet you said nothing about it until I forced your hand. And what if I had? Darl countered. It's not as if I could be blamed for causing the situation. Johnny snorted. Of course not. But as you said outside, Darl continued as if he hadn't noticed the interruption, the important question is why. Why did I offer, and why did Aventine accept? Why the Council accepted is easy, Johnny said. You're a Dominion Comité, and what you say goes. Darl shook his head. I told you you were missing the point. The Gantua problem helped, certainly, but it was really only part of a much more basic motivation. They accepted because it was the solution that required the least amount of work. Johnny frowned. I don't understand. It's clear enough. By placing the main burden and danger of Aventine's growth on you cobras, they've postponed any need to shift the responsibility to the general population. Given a chance to continue such a system, people will nearly always jump at it, especially with an excuse as immediate and convenient as the Gantuas to point to. But it's only a short-term solution, Johnny insisted. In the long run, I know that, Darl snapped. But the fraction of humanity who can sacrifice their next meal for a feast two weeks away wouldn't fill this city. If you're going to stay in politics, you'd damn well better learn that. He stopped and grimaced into the silence. It's been years since I lost my temper in anything approaching public, he admitted. Forgive me and take it as a sign that I'm not any happier than you are that this had to be done. Why did it? Johnny asked quietly. Two weeks ago he would have shouted the question, putting into it all the frustration and fury he'd felt then. But now the anger was gone, and he'd accepted his failure, and the question was a simple request for information. Darl sighed. The other why? Because, Syndic Moreau, it was the only way I could think of to save this world from disaster. He waved his hand skyward. 
The troughed threats to close the corridor have been getting louder and more insistent over the past year or so. Only one thing keeps them from doing it tonight, the fact that it would mean a two-front war. And for Aventine to be a credible part of that two-front threat, you must have a continued Cobra presence. Johnny shook his head. But it doesn't work that way. We have no transport capability to speak of. We can't possibly threaten them. And even if we could, they could always launch a preemptive strike and wipe us out from the sky in a matter of hours. But they wouldn't. I once thought that myself. But the more I study the indirect psychological data gleaned over the years, the more I suspect mass destruction simply isn't the troughed way of making war. No, they'd be much more likely to invade, as they did on Silvern and Adirondack. But you still don't need cobras to defend against that, Johnny persisted, feeling frustration stirring to life in him again. You brought in anti-armor lasers. You could just as easily have brought in standard laser rifles and organized a militia or even a standing army. Why can't I make you understand that? Darl smiled sadly. Because the Trofts aren't afraid of human militias or armies. They're afraid of cobras. Johnny blinked. He opened his mouth to disagree, but all that came out was a single whispered syllable. Damn. Darl nodded. And you see now why I had to do all this. Aventine may never have the ability to truly defend itself against an invasion, but as long as a deterrent exists, even a purely psychological one, well, you at least have a chance. And the Dominion is spared the trouble and expense of a punitive war, Johnny suggested acidly. Again, Darl smiled. You're beginning to understand the mechanisms of politics. The greatest good for the greatest number and immediate benefits for as many as possible. Or at least for those whose support you need, Johnny asked quietly. Those whose objections don't count can be ignored. Johnny, it's your safety we're talking about here, Jamie put in earnestly. Yes, it's going to cost you something, but everything in life does. I know that. Johnny stood up. And I'll even accept that the Comité had our interests at least somewhat at heart. But I don't have to like his solution, and I don't have to like his method of pushing it on us. You withheld information about the Gantuas from us, Comité, maybe for months, and someone could have been killed because of it. If I could see it make a scrap of difference, I'd have that fact on the public net tonight. As it is, I suppose I'll just have to leave you to your own conscience, if you still have one. Johnny, Jamie began angrily. No, it's all right, Darl interrupted him. An honest enemy is worth a dozen allies of expediency. Goodbye, Syndic Moreau. Johnny nodded and turned his back on the comité. The door slid open as he approached it and he stepped through, relying on his memory to get him back through the corridors to the ship's exit. Thoughts churning, he didn't notice Jamie had followed him until the other spoke. I'm sorry it had to end that way. I would have liked you to understand him. Oh, I understand him, Johnny replied shortly. I understand that he's a politician and can't bother to think through the human consequences of his chess moves. You're a politician now yourself, Jamie reminded him, guiding him through a turn he'd forgotten. Chances are you'll be stuck with a similar no-win situation yourself someday. In the meantime, I hope you have enough wins and losses to be able to handle both a little better. They said their goodbyes at the entryway. Cool, formal words of farewell Johnny would never have envisioned saying to his own brother. And a few minutes later, the Cobra was back in his car. But he didn't drive off immediately. 
Instead, he sat behind the wheel and stared at the muted sheen of the Dominion ship, his mind replaying over and over again Jamie's last words to him. Could he really be reacting so strongly simply because he'd lost a minor power struggle? He was unused to defeat, after all. Could his noble-sounding concern for Aventine's future be truly that petty underneath? No. He'd suffered defeats many times, on Adirondack, on Horizon after the war, even in the opening round of the brief struggle against Chalinor. He knew how losing felt, knew how he reacted to it, and knew it was often only temporary. Temporary. With one final glance at Darl's ship, Johnny started the car. No, it wasn't over yet. Aventine would survive and grow, and he, not Darl, would be best in position to guide that growth. And if learning the art of politics was what he needed to do, he would become the best damn politician this side of Asgard. In the meantime, there were a woman, a child, and a district who deserved his full attention. Turning the car around, he headed for home. Chris, he knew, would be waiting up. Interlude The haiku garden had changed over the years. Slowly and subtly enough, the Darl no longer remembered exactly how it had been when he had succeeded Comité Horm. One stretch, however, showed Darl's hand clearly. A series of blusser reeds, stunted cyprene trees and other flora from Aventine. As far as he knew, he was the only Comité to incorporate plant life of the outer colonies in his haiku garden, and it looked very much like no one else would ever have the chance to do so. Jamie Moreau, at his side, correctly interpreted his gaze. This time they mean it, don't they, he said. It was more a statement than a question. Darl hesitated, then nodded. I can't see any other interpretation for such a clear-cut demand. We're going to be lucky if the ship we're sending doesn't get stranded on Aventine. Or halfway back. Jamie squatted down to straighten the blusser reed that was trying to fall over. Halfway back would be a problem, Darl agreed. But we can't let the troughs close the corridor without at least giving Aventine a little warning. For all the good it'll do, Jamie's voice was controlled, but Darl knew what he was thinking. The younger man's brother and sister were out there, and if the relationships were a bit cooler than they'd once been, Jamie still cared deeply for them both. They'll survive, the comité told him, wishing the words could be more than ineffectual puffs of air. The troughed concept of hostage seems to involve land and property instead of people. If they behave themselves, the troughts aren't likely to hurt them. Jamie straightened up, brushing bits of dirt from his fingers. Except that they won't behave themselves, he said quietly. They'll fight, especially Johnny and the other cobras. And that is, after all, just what the committee and joint command want them to do. Darl sighed. That's always been the fate hanging over their heads, Moreau. We knew it when we sent them out. You probably knew it deep down when you first came up with the plan. Whatever happens now, it was still worth the risk. Jamie nodded. I know, sir, but I can't help wishing there was something we could do for them here. I'm open to suggestions. How about letting the troughs close the corridor in exchange for leaving the colonies alone? Darl shook his head. I've thought of that, but the committee would never go for it. Impossible to verify, for starters. Besides which, we've put a lot of money, people, and effort into those worlds, 
and we couldn't simply cut them adrift without a fight. Jamie sighed and nodded in reluctant agreement. I'd like to request a place on the courier ship, sir, if you can get me aboard. I know it's short notice, but I can be ready before the scheduled lift from Adirondack. Darl had suspected the request was coming, but that didn't make his answer any easier to give. I'm sorry, Moro, but I'm afraid I can't allow you to go. You've pointed out yourself the danger of troughed capture or destruction on the return trip, and before you tell me you're willing to take the risks, let me say I'm not willing for you to do so. You know too much about the internal workings and frictions of the committee, and I'd hate to have the troughts using our own most petty politics against us. Then let me take a fast recall blockage treatment, Jamie persisted. It wouldn't delay the lift by more than a day if I can schedule my recuperation period to be aboard ship. Darl shook his head. No, because you could lose it all permanently with a hasty treatment like that, and I'm not risking that either. Jamie exhaled in defeat. Yes, sir. Darl gazed off across the haiku garden. I'm not insensitive to your feelings, he said quietly. But such a hurried meeting with your family under these conditions would be bittersweet at best, and certainly unproductive. The best thing you can do for them is to stay here and help me hold off the diplomatic breakdown as long as I can. The longer we have before actual hostilities begin, the more time they'll have to prepare. And the more time, he didn't add, the Dominion would have to prepare its own defenses. Because, important as they were, the outer colonies represented less than 400,000 people, and from the perspective of the Dome, the Dominion's 70 other worlds and 100 billion other people were vastly more important. In the defense of those people, Aventine and its sister worlds were ultimately expendable. The greatest good for the greatest number was still the most stable guide point Darl knew. He was careful not to spell it all out for Jamie, but then the other had probably already figured it out. Why else would he have wanted to go to Aventine and say goodbye? With a sigh, Darl continued down the path. One more curve and he would be back to his office door, back to the real world and to the looming specter of war, and to waiting for a miracle he knew wouldn't happen. Statesman, 2432. The bedside phone signal was a loud directional buzz scientifically designed to wake even deep sleepers. But it had been months since Johnny slept merely deeply, and his mind barely noticed the sound enough to incorporate it into his current dream. It wasn't until Chris's gentle prodding escalated to a vigorous shake that he finally drifted up to partial wakefulness. Hmm, he asked, eyes still closed. Johnny, Theron Yutu's on the phone, she said. He says it's urgent. <sighs> Johnny sighed, rolling heavily onto his side and punching at the hold-release button. Yeah. Governor, I'm at the Starfield, Yutu's voice came. A Dominion courier ship's on its way in ETA about an hour. They want you, Governor General Stigur, and as many syndics as possible assembled here when they arrive. At, what is it, three in the morning? What's the rush? I don't know, sir. They wouldn't say anything more than that. But the Starfield night manager said they wanted no more than a twelve-hour turnaround. They want to leave in twelve hours? What the hell is... Oh, never mind. I'm sure they wouldn't tell you. 
Johnny inhaled deeply, trying to clear the ground clutter from his brain. Have you gotten in touch with Stigger yet? No, sir. The HAP-3 satellite's still out, and it'll be another half hour before HAP-2 is in position to make the call. And once he was notified, it would be another three hours before he could get back from the outland district he was touring. Which meant the whole burden of greeting this mysterious and apparently impatient Dominion representative was going to fall on Johnny. Well, you'd better get some people calling all the syndics. Even the ones who can't get here in an hour should come as soon as they can. Um, any idea of what rank this guy is? No, sir. But from his attitude, I doubt he's looking for much in the way of ceremony. Well, that's one bright spot, anyway. If it's efficiency he wants, we'll give it to him with spangles. We'll skip the Dominion building altogether and meet at the Starfield's entry point building. Can you get us a decently sized office or conference room and set up some security around it? Almo Pyre's already down there. I'll have him find you a room. Good. Johnny tried to think of anything else he should suggest, but gave up the effort. You two generally knew what he was doing anyway. All right, I'll be at the Starfield in half an hour. Better get out there yourself. I might need you. Yes, sir. Sorry about all this. It's okay. See you. Johnny flicked off the phone with a sigh and lay quietly for a moment, gathering his strength. Then, trying not to groan audibly, he sat up. It wasn't as bad as he'd expected. He felt the usual stiffness in his joints, but only one or two actual twinges of pain. The lightheadedness left quickly, and he got to his feet. The hemophacient pills were on his nightstand, but he technically wasn't supposed to take one for another four hours. He did so anyway, and by the time he finished his shower, the last remnants of his anemic fatigue were gone, at least for a while. Chris had been busy in his brief absence, finding and laying out his best formal wear. "'What do you think it's all about?' she asked, keeping her voice low. The eight-year-olds Joshua and Justin were in the next room, and both had a history of light sleeping. Johnny shook his head. The last time they sent someone without at least a couple months' warning, it was to stick us with the Cobra factory. I suppose it could be something like that, but a twelve-hour turnaround sounds awfully ominous. He either wants to get back home as fast as possible or doesn't want to spend any more time here than absolutely necessary. Could some disease have shown up in our last shipment? Chris asked holding his shirt for him. A lot of those commercial carriers only take minimal precautions. If it had, they'd probably have specified that they'd stay aboard their ship while it was being serviced. Johnny grimaced as he backed into the sleeves, trying to keep the sudden pain from showing. Chris noticed anyway. Dad called this afternoon to remind you again about getting that checkup, she said. What for? Johnny growled. To hear him tell me my anemia and arthritis are still getting worse. I already know that. He sighed. I'm sorry, Chris. I know I should go see Oren, but I truly don't know what good it would do. I'm paying the price for being a Superman all these years, and that's all there is to it. She was silent for a long moment, and in a way her surface calm was more disturbing than the periodic outbursts of bitterness and rage that had occurred over the first months of his condition. It meant she'd accepted the fact that he couldn't be cured and was sublimating her own pain to help him and their three sons handle theirs. You'll call when you know what's going on, she asked at last. Sure, he promised, relieved at the change of subject. But only for a moment, because there was only one reason he could think of for the behavior of that ship out there. And if he was right, progressive anemia was likely to be the least of his worries.
Five minutes later, he was driving toward the starfield. Beyond the glow of the streetlights and the darkened city, the ghosts of Adirondack seemed to be gathering. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Larry Correa, and be sure to tune in next week for part two of our discussion. Good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afshirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.